Between January 2023 and September 2023, Police Scotland has confirmed that there were 900 drug-related deaths in Scotland, a rise of 103 over the same period in 2022. Commenting on those 2022 figures in January of this year, the Scottish Government's then Drug Policy Minister, Angela Constance, said, We remain focused on our ongoing efforts to get more people into the form of treatment which works best for them. Two and a half years ago in July 2021, commenting on the 1,031 drug deaths that occurred during the pandemic in Scotland between March 2020 and March 2021, Miss Constance said the deaths were a human tragedy. In response to these remarks, Anne-Marie Ward, who heads up the charity Faces and Voices of Recovery, Favour UK, said, you keep talking, we keep dying. Welcome to The Ordinary Elite with me, John McGovern, and my colleague, Mike Daly. A special edition where Mike and I are joined by Anne-Marie Ward to discuss why the Scottish Government is failing to stop these human tragedies repeating every single day. So welcome to The Ordinary Elite, Anne-Marie. Thank you, John. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for inviting me. Delighted to be here. Good. Uh, and Mike, do you think that drug policy in Scotland is contributing to these human tragedies? Well, that's why I'm delighted that we've got Anne-Marie back on the, the, the show, John, because we, we last spoke to, to you, Anne-Marie, on the 25th of April this year. Uh, so that's about eight months ago. And I'm, I'm really keen to get your kind of insights on, you know, has there been progress made? I mean, I, I know that from the, uh, the official data in terms of people that have died uh, from drug-related uh, deaths, there was a, a small reduction uh, in 2022 uh, compared to 2021. But nevertheless, I think what's incredible is that we're still almost three times as high in terms of people dying from drug-related deaths in Scotland to the rest of the UK. And interestingly, in terms of when the records first began, which I understand in terms of the National Records of Scotland was 1996, if you compare 2000, the year 2000, to last year, we were 3.7, so almost four times higher the amount of deaths that were happening um, uh, last year compared to the year 2000. So uh, really interested, Amory, in terms of, how, you know, we can talk about, I know you've been very busy working with MSPs on, on your bill, um, um, but just in the context of this week, I mean, we've just heard, um, I think, yesterday that there's £30 million of cuts to mental health services. So kind of coming back to sort of John's point, you do sort of pinch yourself and say, how can we be making progress if we're cutting uh, public services in the way that we are, Anne-Marie? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, what I found astounding about that announcement of the £30 million cuts was it was lauded by over, I think there was over 30 organisations who sent for the First Minister a letter about human rights and, you know, saying that maybe human rights wouldn't go far enough. And, uh, you know, what's, what stunned me about that letter was none of them mentioned the £30 million of cuts and also that the rhetoric involved in that, as I have come to know that human rights aren't actionable by law and that, you know, maybe, I've given them the benefit of the doubt, maybe they don't know that. Maybe they think that there's some, there is some muscularity behind this human rights uh, nonsense. So 
I am, you know, not that human rights are nonsense, of course, but, you know, the fact that we are ramping up the rhetoric around it um, is really fascinating to, to observe and also equally uh, incredibly frustrating because I have that knowledge that I know that none of it's actionable by law and that it's, it's you know, it's, it's pumping people up to think that they've got rights that they can't actually action. Well, no, that I think that's a really important point that you make because, I mean, I, I mean, I certainly use um, arguments around the Human Rights Act 1998, but and and I know John has over many decades, uh, but the reality is you're absolutely right, Anne Marie. What you do in any kind of case is you rely on your domestic law as a primary uh, source of rights and. Uh, as a legal remedy. <clears throat> and when you get into trying to argue, for example, you know, cases based on Article 6, the right to a, a fair uh, uh, hearing uh -huh. uh, uh, and, and trial, uh, or for example, Article 1 of the first uh, protocol, which is to do with property rights. So for example, you can argue that with Article 14 in terms of discrimination and make a case about particular policies of public bodies, you know, do they indirectly discriminate, so on and so forth. But anyway, what I make about that is that's really complicated and it's at the end of the line in terms of you've got no other argument yeah. available, right? It's a tough, tough, tough call. Now... And, and they'll be resisted, Mike, any of those. Most of, in my experience, most of those arguments that you would present, you would have to go to court to do so after having explained to whoever in, in a criminal context, the Crown, why you're doing it, but they wouldn't accept it. You'd have to go to court and uh, argue it. And, it, and it's, it's, uh, it's tricky, it's tough. The courts are, in my experience, quite reluctant, or uh, maybe not so much now, but they were reluctant to get involved. And I agree with Anne-Marie, it's, an, yep. it's almost like an abstract co uh, kind of a concept in Scotland's human rights, you know? Well, here's the thing, John, I mean, just just for come, come back to you, Anne-Marie, on this, is that if you think about it, um, in terms of being able to rely on human rights arguments, as you say, um, it, it's it's really it's really quite tough. And why would you want to, to do that? And let's remember, in terms of European jurisprudence, human rights jurisprudence, there's there's things called margins of appreciation, you know, that for example a state's allowed. There's all sorts of case law and proportionality. So it's not a black and white thing. And one of the things I think you've been certainly advocating very strongly for Anne Marie, along with um uh, other people that support your cause is to give people the right to be assessed, uh, people that have got uh, addiction uh, difficulties that are, you know, of, of risk to life, and to give them a right to treatment. Now, you know, making that uh, a, a set of rights in a Scottish, you know, parliamentary bill is the kind of thing that could be much more easily enforceable and could make a huge difference. You know, but it seems, I mean, I think both of you completely agree with you. This idea of just talking about, oh, um, uh, human rights in Scotland, aren't we wonderful? It's almost like a policy exercise, you know, to talk about, as, as you say, John, the abstract philosophy of da-da-da-da-da-da-da. What we need in terms of people to make a difference in their life is a black letter law right the right to get something, and not only the right to get it, but the right also to then have an accessible remedy through, if required, the court system. And that's what you've been doing with your bill, Anne-Marie, and I think, you know, to me, that is, that's got to be the way forward. 
Well, that's right. And, you know, what's fascinating about the Right to Recovery Bill is it would give the people those actionable black, you know, slam dunk here, you've got the rights. It would give them it really, really quickly, like within, you know, hopefully 24 hours, the same way that we uh, tackle homelessness. So um, what's fascinating to me about it, though, is that the addiction sector and various quangos, and over the last few years I've saw just how many quangos are actually associated with Scottish Government, paid for by Scottish Government, and who, you know, toe toe the party line, basically. And from a democracy point of view, I've been absolutely fascinated to see that we don't operate like a democracy. And I know that I'm not an anti-political speak here, but when everybody's on the payroll or when the majority of people are on the payroll, it's very hard to get them to support something that's came in from the flank, which is the Right to Recovery Bill. Yeah. It was written by lived experience. It yeah. was supported and developed by lived experience. We went to all of these quangos and asked them if they could do it, do it for us because we were too wee. We didn't have the manpower. We went to all the different parties and said, will you run with it? We went to the SNP first, obviously. They knocked us back. Labour knocked us back. And to my, you know, disappointment, it was the two the Tories that took us up in it. But I have to say, my experience have been of working with the Tories, whatever their motive has been, has been nothing short of extremely professional. You know, they have been brilliant, and I and I believe when they tell me about their friends and family who have died from addiction, who haven't been able to access services, I believe their motives are correct on trying to support this bill and bring it to the parliament. So, you know, the fact that these quangos don't support it, these organisations are very, very quiet about it. I read uh, a piece of uh, work during the week, and I've actually wrote 20 pages pulling it apart, which was called the Workforce Development Plan, which is essentially, this is a plan for um, the addiction sector. It's essentially a plan about making a plan. And I was reminded of the Ronald Reagan quote um, about, you know, when when plans fail, planners plan. Um, and that, you know, I've I, 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 I brought 20 pages pulling it apart, you know, just uh, for, you know, just to highlight, and I hope people read it, but um, I've tried to make it quite humorous, but I just think, what the hell is going on when we are so wedded to upholding the status quo, no changing anything, protecting, you know, the, the organisations that are supposed to, you know, be serving the people who are suffering. They, they are so invested in looking after, and I know it's a human thing to look after your own backyard, but my God, they're doing the absolute opposite. And the virtue signalling um, oh, is beyond anything that I've ever seen in any sort of propaganda. You know, the, the constant rhetoric, the, the constant lies from politicians and that then filters down into these quangos, you know, they, they just espouse these lies over and over again, you know, without any, you know, obviously they're in a position, sorry to be ranting, but they must trust the government. Or if yeah. they, you know, and, and I don't, unfortunately, I've lost all trust in our, our political paymaster. But do, you, do you not think this is a, I mean, a wider problem? It's kind of civic Scotland, isn't it? You know, you get drawn in 
you get drawn in, you get into the kind of wood panelled rooms, they include you, you know, to be seen to be including you, and they listen to what you've got to say, but at the end of the day, they do what they want. You know, if the majority is big enough in Parliament, they'll do what they want. Yeah, and, and, every, and, and in law, in law, it's been like that, and particularly in the legal aid sector, which is there effectively to provide access to justice for those who cannot afford to pay for solicitors. It couldn't be further from that at the moment, and it's been a, it's been just declining and declining and declining for the last, you know, twenty years. But the approach from solicitors, by and large, especially the Law Society of Scotland, has been, we can work with the government, we'll work with them, we'll help them, we'll do this, we're together at our justice partners. It's, it's bullshit, it's rubbish, it's just well, rubbish. Absolutely. You know, in the early years when I was campaigning, I was told, oh, Anne-Marie, you have to be, you know, you have to be more collaborative, you have to work in a nicer way, you have to be more yeah. polite. You have to, you know, be more, have middle class sensibilities, essentially. And I'm like, well, that's all well and good, guys, mm -hmm. but they're still, excuse my language, you know, it doesn't, uh, you know, you can bleep that out, Mike. But they, it's, a, it's a Christmas edition, we'll let you off. I, but they are, you know, it's, it's good. You know, I'm, I'm sorry for swearing, but the, uh, if you're if you're wanting to be, you know, actually help people who are suffering, you ha as we saw with, you know, various projects over, you know, the last few years that have that have been, you know, came up through, you know, just through sheer demand for it. You know, like they are, and, and as is our project, constantly um, maligned by these big organisations and by, you know, these charities. Um, they really want to ruin our reputations because what we're doing is highlighting, you know, I'm constantly attacked for being against harm reduction measures, which is, nothing could be further from the truth. All I'm doing is highlighting the imbalance and in the investment in our system, which shows that we are primarily only invested in harm reduction measures. So it's, you know, I've tried the progressive centre ground, the reasonable middle-class polite. I learned their language. I learned how to speak it. They still don't listen. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think you're absolutely right, Anne-Marie, because... Just to give a couple examples um, of what I would describe as kind of giving people rights which are sort of like nebulous nimbus cloud, you know, will-o'-the-wisp type stuff that's just nonsense. Think about the patient's charter, right? We've Our, our NHS Scotland has never had longer waiting lists. It's never had people having to wait forever to get even, you know, treatment in terms of cancer. It's just appalling, right? Yet we introduced sort of patient charters, which are effectively meaningless. We constantly in the Scottish Parliament in Holyrood introduced targets. Well, we're going to have a target for this for, you know, 2020, 2030, 2045, whatever. Meaningless. Absolute guff, right? Because what happens is 10 years down the line, you come to it and it's, like, oh, well, we never made it, you know, but um, blah, 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 blah. Let's have a new target. So all these things I just find are a waste of time. Let me just give you a very quick example in terms of, why I think your right to recovery bill with its solid rights in terms of being able to be assessed in terms of, you know, treatment that you require and then the ability to have a right to access treatment. <clears throat> you made a, a reference, Anne-Marie, to homelessness. I tell you what I've been doing every day uh, in this great city of Glasgow is I've been <laughs> with my colleagues acting for people that have been sleeping rough on the streets of Glasgow, often for several days, often for over a week. And we just, in the last two weeks, we just published um, 
some stats that we'd done, and it was over 67 cases in the last couple of weeks in terms of people that were homeless. That included 40 people who were sleeping on the streets, um, a, a large number that were also in unsuitable accommodation. And uh, as at the end of yesterday, I had drafted 30 petitions for judicial review in the court session um, to get people's rights implemented. And I'll tell you what happens. And I just did two this morning, by the way, right? So that's 32. And so just tell you what happens. People have got, in terms of the House of Scotland Act 1987, uh, and with the unsuitable accommodation order 2014 as amended, a solid right if they are homeless. Um, and if, for example, you're a refugee, you don't have to have a local connection because you've got no local connection, you're a refugee. You're entitled to apply and the local authority must provide you with emergency temporary accommodation. But they don't do that. And that's not and that's not just in Glasgow, that's happening across Scotland. It's happening in Edinburgh, it's happening in other parts of the country. But here's what we do. Because the legislation is framed in a mandatory way, and we just had a very recent UK Supreme Court case called R. Imam uh, on this last week, which was in favour of homeless people in England. And we've got a similar case pending uh, in Scotland, in the case of X. Um, but what I say to you, Anne-Marie, is that, that, that yes, okay, local authorities are breaking the law. They're acting unlawfully when it comes to homelessness. But we have a legal remedy. And I tell you what, it works. So every time my colleagues contact local authorities and say, you must do da-da-da-da-da, often they will, often they won't. And if they don't, we can get you know emergency legal aid, we can get legal proceedings drafted, we can get it into court, and the moment it's about to go into the court session in Edinburgh, I'll tell you what happens, accommodation appears, you know, a temporary furnished flat, emergency hotel. And so the point I'm sort of making to you is that wouldn't it be a good thing, and John, I'd appreciate your thoughts on this as well, wouldn't it be a good thing if we're really serious about helping people get into recovery in terms of drug addictions, that they actually had a right to get recovery? There's, there's, no, there's no bigger human right than the right to life, for goodness sake. And uh, look at those drug death statistics that were read out at the beginning of the this podcast, that I read out at the beginning of the podcast. Yeah. You know, as Anne-Marie says, you know, you keep talking, we keep dying. What are you going to do about it? And the, the Right to Addiction Recovery Bill that, that Anne-Marie effectively in our favour UK is sponsoring tries to do something about it, you yeah. know, because policy is failing. Whatever else, you know, and, and, you know, maybe we were a bit harsh earlier on. There are well-intentioned people that go into these kind of sectors and, uh, you know, do kind of adopt the language and do work hard, but and they are well-intentioned, but ultimately they're failing. It's as simple as that, because look at the rates of deaths uh, and drug deaths and the situation with, with, with the, the homeless, the, 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 the need to litigate, Mike. So why, why would you not support this bill is, would be my starting point. Why would you not support it? And the only reason I can think of that you wouldn't support it is political. It's for the yeah. reasons that, that we're kind of well, talking about, yeah. that they would lose face, people would need to leave quangos, all this type of political establishment would be turned upside down. And hey, there are no votes in homelessness. There are no votes in drug deaths. You know, there are no votes in increasing access to justice through legal aid. So let's leave it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I, th I think that's a really important point, John, you know, like, 
there is no reason not to support this bill. You know, there have been a few kid-on reasons put forward by various propaganda legalising type organisations and, and various organisations claiming that we would we don't support harm reduction when, you know, this bill would give you access to that. And not only give you access to harm reduction interventions, it would make sure that any political parties in the future, uh, you know, as they do, as is their whim, that they could not change your access access to, you know, clean needles, naloxone and various other harm reduction interventions. So, you know, it's a really bill, but often when people say to me as well, oh, you're getting a bit political, Anne-Marie, I'm like, I didn't want to get political, but I realise how bloody political this topic and this subject actually is, and I had no idea how 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 mired in politics it was until I started campaigning. And I've had a very, very rude awakening, unfortunately, which has led me to lose faith in the whole system and actually question our democracy overall. Anne-Marie, think, go back, Alfred, see when it comes to the issues we're talking about in human rights, you, for me, it's, you just go back to basics. Why, do, why, would, why would you want a society where, you know, three or four people a day are dying of drug deaths on, on the streets of your cities. Why would why would you want a society like that? Why would you want a society that remands prisoners for years now, basically, when in actual fact the law prior to the pandemic put that at around three months, four months maximum? You know, why would you want a society that doesn't allow or doesn't uh, want to house people? You know, why? of course you want a society like that. And therefore, you know, the, the moral fundamentals of this, mm. of these issues for me, are absolutely solid. And that's why if you are dealing with all these uh, criticisms, Anne-Marie, which you clearly are, you know, it can be a lonesome place doing it. But for me, you know, your, 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 your kind of moral fibre is absolutely spot on. And that's what's pulling it through. Mm. And you're now getting a bill into Parliament, you know, mm. for goodness sake. Uh, and once yeah, you're in there... I think it's that moral compass that we've lost, that like civic engagement, civic Scotland has lost its moral compass because so many organisations are on the payroll and they have to play the piper's tune, you know, and that's not to say yes. that people's personal integrity uh, isn't, you know, under question, of course it is, but most people will put their families and their mortgages first, you know, I understand that. I'm, uh, I've got nothing to lose, I'm in a very privileged position. You know, I've got nothing to lose, and that that gives me strength. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, Anne Marie, about you know the fact that the former first minister, you know, announced that it was a national a national mission to tackle, you know, the chronic and uh, epidemic fatality rates around drug uh, misuse, uh, and how we need to treat it as a public health issue. Now, all of these things are devolved. What seems to be have happened, certainly, um, I think since we spoke to you, was this sort of um, segue into saying, "Oh, if only we could decriminalise drugs." And of course, that's you know, I mean, see, whenever I mean, we talk about this a lot uh, on the show, myself and John, you know, whenever you know things get tough in terms of you know domestic Scottish politics. One solution is to look for a constitutional argument to blame Westminster or to divert attention, you know, as a sort of a, a red herring. Let's look, let's look over there. Look at that squirrel over there, right? Don't look at what's happening. Now, 
I mean, I, I, I think there's definitely a debate to be had, of course, you know, and, and we've had it in terms of, for example, you know, drug treatment rooms. Um, and there's definitely a debate to be had about, for example, particular types of, you know, drugs like, say, you know, cannabis, you know, is it right that it's classified in the way it is? And I mean, there's all sorts of issues about about that. And, you know, we I think you'd you'd sort of said the dangers. I think you'd mentioned that book um about San Francisco, you know, where actually it's not necessarily a panacea. But do you think that this this whole kind of thrown into the the debate, the issue of if only we could have the power uh, devolved to the Scottish Parliament to decriminalise is? I mean, what I mean, is, would that make a difference to what we're talking about in any meaningful way? No, absolutely not. And I think, you know, we've sort of the decriminalisation evidence that we're starting to see come from various states is horrendous. You know, we're looking at a humanitarian disaster in Oregon, Portland, Oregon, San Francisco. You know, San Francisco is the name of that book by Michael Schellenberger. Um, I mean, it's just horrendous. But ultimately what they're doing is they've now got permission to open the drug consumption room. So they fought that battle politically saying it's big, bad Westminster. Our drug laws are, dis are, are um, reserved. So they keep putting forward the reserved uh, argument. And most people, not most people, I think some people are waking up to it now just purely because myself and our volunteers are completely obsessed by, you know, saying this this is them playing politics. So now that they've got permission to do drug consumption rooms, they've got to have another way to beat to blame Westminster and say it's the big bad boys down in Westminster. And this is their, their latest attempt at doing that. I don't believe for a minute that they are actually they actually believe in decriminalization because all the evidence is, you know, stacking up. And, and all the world leading academics, and if anybody's interested in this area, go and look at um, Keith Humphreys uh, from Stanford University. Mm. Don't look at the evidence and the memes and the infographics and the, the propaganda that's been put out by legalisation organisations. Look at Stanford University academics like Keith Humphreys. Um, uh, as I said, it's, it's an argument. It's a, an argument about independence and you know unfortunately as a member still as a member of the SNP I'm still a member you know I am devastated by what they've done and what they're doing you know uh, particularly when so many people especially in our poorest communities are dying in record numbers we're actually looking at the or trying to get hold of the data to look at cocaine deaths and suicide deaths on Mondays and Tuesdays, you know, uh -huh. because of that come down. Um, and again, that's happening in our poorest communities. And, and our drug services are only fit for purpose because they don't know what to do. With, with cocaine, they, you know, there is no substitute prescription for cocaine use and they're, they're totally unskilled, hence why I've spent 20 pages, writing 20 pages on their plan about making a plan about workforce development. I mean... Um, just in terms of, I mean, just bringing this back to, I think that was very helpful, but bringing it back to treatment, you know, and the ability to get the the support and the public services are absolutely vital. Because I think, I think when 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 we spoke uh, in April, I think we really sort of delved into the fact that people do need, they need to have that uh, that support. And sometimes it'll be, you know, peer support. Sometimes it'll be, you know, uh, professional medical uh, folk, uh, a combination thereof. But one thing that also strikes me is that 
And one thing, I, I wonder if you think this is the case, Anne-Marie, we don't really seem to have any sort of cognizance that this problem in terms of uh, drug deaths, drug-related deaths, isn't evenly uh, occurring across Scotland. You know, so the highest in terms of, and not just pro rata, the highest, you know, literally highest uh, incidence of, of, of deaths is Glasgow. And then I think that's closely followed by Dundee. Um, um, and so, you know, there's other parts of Scotland that are very, very low compared to, say, Glasgow or Dundee. And yet it seems to be, am I right in thinking that in terms of the investment, for example, in services that one would need in Glasgow and Dundee because they have a higher incidence, there doesn't seem to be any cognizance of that as far as I can see. Well, it's not only that. You, there's no cognizance of anything out with harm reduction intervention, particularly in Glasgow. I would say one of the reasons why Glasgow has so many deaths is because they they invest the least across the, the country in any sort of recovery-orientated practices as well. Um, so uh, there's a real problem with ideology here as well. Our drug services are completely and utterly wedded to a harm reduction model and only that. So the argument goes that we have to meet people where they're at, which of course is a compassionate um, and common sense argument. Mm. But what we do in Scotland and for the most part in Glasgow is we just leave them there. We just give them, you know, make, we make it safer for them to use drugs mm. and we, give them, you know, we're now going to give them safe places to use drugs and we don't give them any exit routes and how to deal with it. You know, when the public, when we talk about drug treatment, the public think rehab, right? Mm. Actually, what's actually going on, where the money's going is it's going into harm reduction interventions, which are valuable interventions, but they're not drug treatment. This isn't treatment. Treatment is helping you get freedom from addiction. You know, that is actual treatment. And unfortunately, in this country, only the rich can afford that. Wow. I mean, I'm just conscious. Um, I know that John will come in in a second, but I'm just conscious we're getting to the end of our time, Anne-Marie, and, and maybe just to sort of, to kind of, finish on looking ahead um just in terms of the bill being introduced you know the right to recovery bill um and maybe a sense of is there cross-party support i mean maybe you can give us some insights on on the way forward because it seems to me that that you know what you've been campaigning on I, and certainly, I mean, John has already said this, that people need to have solid rights to be able to get access to treatment and recovery. So so what's happening on that front? Okay, so we, Stevie Wishart and I, the other author of the bill, because Stevie and I did author it, you know, it's, it's obviously it's gone to Brodie's, to, you know, the proper lawyers and stuff uh, to, to tidy it up, but we... Where it's at just now is it's Brodies have looked at it, they've came back to us, Stevie and I have made some amendments. The Tories have now got it again. They've went back to Brodies and they're going to arrange a meeting between me and um Stevie and the lawyers at Brodies. Hopefully it'll come to the Parliament. Mm. Anis Answar has said that the Labour Party shook Stevie and I's hand last year um and said that providing it, you know, as it presents at the moment is still the same you will have the Labour Party's full support on this um, Good. obviously all the Tories are going to support it so the numbers it means you know the numbers are looking quite good to get it through the first stage so yeah I, I'm hopeful I'm optimistic uh, I, I know that the, the the SNP are looking for ways to you know 
be seen to be helping. So, you know, maybe maybe their own moral compass will kick in and they'll actually start to provide something that people need. Who knows? It's Christmas. I'm hopeful. <laughs> well, it'll be fascinating, Anne-Marie, to, to see what they do. If you get Labour support behind it, as well as the, uh, the Tories who are sponsoring it, it'll be fascinating to see what the SNP or how they respond in the context of the discussion we've just had with the, the, yeah. the, the, the situation as it is. I would have loved to get on to talk about the Human Rights Bill, which is, a, is a, in my opinion, a joke. But anyway, it's just more grandstanding. It's covering... It's, it, I mean, it's yeah. adopted into Scots, Scots law, UN conventions that are, that are already part of, you know, UK law. It's just... I posted about it during the week saying, you know, the Charter of Rights. So they rolled out the lived experience who work in services and said, we're going to do this. We're going to, again, they're, they're going to, they're consulting on de- writing a Charter of Rights. And I'm like, come on a minute, guys, we did this back in 2018. We wrote something like this. This is, But the difference is we went all across the UK and did it with the UK Recovery Declaration of Rights, which is based on the Geneva Convention. This has already been done. It's a piece of rhetoric. We knew it was a piece of rhetoric at the time, yeah. but we did it for the relationship building. We did it for the unity. We did it for that. So when I'm calling that out and saying, yeah. what the, you know, stop rolling out lived experience to create something that's already been created and that's only a piece of rhetoric, they're trying to divide the, the lived experience community as well and say, oh, that Anne-Marie Ward, just because she's not getting it her way. And I'm like, no, I see the games. I see the games they're playing. You know, listen to me, guys. They're... they're leading you up the garden path and they're shafting us all. Well, look, have a lovely festive uh, Christmas uh, holiday and uh, we're very... Uh, we're, no, we're, very, we're very optimistic and hopeful that, you know, your bill um, will be introduced next year and um, and we can all get campaigning and supporting it. Right? And incidentally, yeah. Anne-Marie, did you know that Ronald Reagan was the only US president who led a strike? A worker's strike. Oh, that's right. The actors. Yeah. The actors. Yeah, that's right. yeah. And to extrapolate that quote that you gave, there's a brilliant Paul Weller line that uh, he was talking about planners. He said, planners just get embarrassed when their plans go wrong, you know, and everyone <laughs> else picks up the pieces, you know. Anyway, <laughs> have a great Christmas, Anne-Marie. Yeah, all the best. Thanks for joining us again. And Mike, I think you and I are doing a, a review of the year next year. <laughs> we're doing. I think we're going to try horse, and get well, well, horse, of, horse of the year show. We'll do a kind of review of what's happened this year, and maybe look ahead. You know, like to the to, to the ghost of Christmas um, future. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks, everybody. Okay, thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.